You're listening to the Revision Path Podcast, a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Welcome to the Revision Path Podcast. My name is Maurice Cherry. And before we get into this week's interview, I wanted to let you know about the 2015 Net Awards. Uh, the nomination process is still going on. Again, this is their 16th year. They've got a new category called Podcast of the Year. I would really like for Revision Path to take that home. So please head over to the netawards.com and nominate Revision Path for the Podcast of the Year category. I'll also put a link to it in the show notes. Revision Path is sponsored by three great companies, MailChimp, Hover, and Creative Market. MailChimp is the premier email service provider choice for entrepreneurs and small businesses. Join more than 7 million people who use MailChimp to design and send 500 million emails every single day. MailChimp just revamped their automation workflow so you can set up those cool drip email campaigns and other automatic email triggers. Sign up today for a free account at MailChimp.com. Need a new domain for your next project? Check out Hover. Each domain comes with free private domain registration, unlimited domain forwarding, and world-class customer support. Grab yourself a domain today and use the promo code SPREADLOVE and save 10% off your purchase. Creative Market sells graphics, fonts, themes, photos, and a whole lot more starting at only $2. They give away a selection of free goods every Monday, today's Monday, and they've got great bundle promotions every month, so be on the lookout for one this month in April. Head over to creativemarket.com and check them out. Now let's get on with the show. This week I talked with Rafe Chisholm, who's a journalist designer currently doing UX design at Delta Airlines here in Atlanta, Georgia. This interview was recorded on location in Austin, Texas at this year's South by Southwest Interactive Festival. Let's start the show. All right, I am here at South by Southwest Interactive. Tell us who you are and what you do. I'm Rafe Chisholm. I would say a generalist designer for Delta Airlines currently. What do you mean when you say a generalist designer? That means I am doing way too many things sometimes. <laughs> Visual design, UX, UI, mobile, content strategy. All really? in a given day, these things can happen. So, How does content strategy filter into design? So that's the weird part, right? It's, it's coming up a lot more, obviously, with responsive design, mobile devices. How do you basically craft down the same message in a way that's digestible in a smaller format? That one little piece is critical for design. Interesting. And you're at Delta right now. When I think about Delta, of course, I think about the Delta website, the Delta app, and those tend to be very well-designed pieces of things. Tell me what the design team and like the design process is at Delta. Right. So, you know, for a legacy brand, a lot of times the, the whole thing is we factor out to an agency. We factor out to an agency. Right. What's happened as of late is there's been a, t a push for more internal for just in-house in teams. And it really became, as a result, of me offering myself up for too many things sometimes. So uh -huh. agency would be behind on the deliverable. And me, I'm sitting there with my Mac on my desk because everyone else has PCs and I refuse to have to use a PC for everything. VP would come by, and he's currently at Apple. He would stop by and go, oh, you got Photoshop. Hey, we're going to send this deck to you. We need you to like, fix a few things. Like, OK, sure. That turns into one project. Then it turns into, <laughs> hey, come into the meeting. Then it turns into, hey, you know, we need you to actually be part of this product design process. So mm -hmm. still, you know, heavy, uh, agency heavy, 
but then now the shift has been over the last, I would say two years, kind of behind the scenes, building this in-house team. How has that shift been going, I guess, from you as an employee standpoint, how has that been for you? It depends on your personality, right? Okay. If you're a person who likes kind of jumping in and doing, it's not foreign, so you're kind of like, this isn't that taxing, but at some point, you do feel like, okay, we need structure. You know, we need defined roles. Those are really awesome <laughs> because those help streamline your workflow. And if no one has a defined role or if the roles are just kind of floating, you know, that means your day-to-day -day can be really hectic. But if you know there's at least a rough, this is what this person does, this is what this person does. And even if you get someone like me who is like a generalist and kind of fits in between the, the different aspects, uh-huh. Still, I can go, okay, I know these people are going to do this. I know this person is going to do this. I know what the agency is going to give us. So I have maybe instead of five of my skill sets to walk into the door with a given day, I can plan my day for two or three. You know, that would be like, that would be huge. So from what, I, from what you've told me, at least, you had kind of an unconventional road to get to where you Man. are with design. <laughs> <laughs> so, so for people that, that are listening, why don't you tell them where you went to college Oh, yeah, yeah. And how you sort of got from there to here. Yeah, okay. So, fellow Morehouse alum, class of 03. The house. Illustrious class, I must say. I started out as a business major. Yeah, business. Okay. And the reason why I came to Morehouse was I was not good at math. I did not think I could go to Georgia Tech. And I had studied AutoCAD all through high school. I was a certified draftsman out uh -huh. of high school. Does Morehouse have that reputation? Like, if you're not good at math, you should go to Morehouse? It wasn't that. But it was that I wasn't going to go for engineering anymore. Oh, so it okay. was like, and, and, but that was the thing. I always had in the back of my head because I knew there was the, the cross uh, campus with Georgia Tech. Right, right, right. I had a right, few right. guys in my... In my dual uh, degree program. Exactly. And those guys, it was just like, I had a couple of guys in my dorm that were dual degree from day one. They knew that's what they were doing. So it was always in my head, like, if I want to go in that direction, like, I can do it too. Yeah. I didn't do it anyway because it was like, <laughs> it was so, it's so demanding. I, I started out, when I got to Morehouse in 03, I started out doing a dual degree i was computer science computer engineering yeah yeah so, you guys and, I, and i switched after that first semester i was like the thing is no you guys are like re very respected because you walked around campus almost like with the austerity of monks like <laughs> everyone knew that this was a at least a four if you're on point you're getting out in four right if you got on five you're doing a dual degree you're still way more hardcore than all of us coming in day one where a lot of people don't know what they want to do a lot of people are business majors. <laughs> well, and, and you know, and I'll be honest to that effect. I don't know. Did you ever get to go down to the dual degree office and speak to them? I spoke to them. Yeah. I would yeah. say out of, and I really don't have uh, that much experience with a bunch of the offices at Morehouse, but I feel like the dual degree office was yeah. so caring. I felt that you guys in, were in, in, in yeah. terms of like making sure that you really succeeded. Like we had that annual dual degree banquet and everything like they really right. tried to make you feel like you were part of a, a family yeah it, it was, was it really was guys. it really was i noticed that because it was i'm trying to think who i knew i feel like richard jux was one and he went to, oh yeah i know jux yeah yeah, yeah. he was my neighbor in okay my dorm. okay so this is the guy when napster starts and all this stuff this is the guy where you're learning these things from so right. these things are always <laughs> in the back of my mind but i just didn't know if it was approachable uh-huh so the one how i started falling into design they had a study abroad program in south africa okay and you got to pick your you know your tracks and one that i picked was media and society or something this was the one that kind of was like, 
I'm obviously very, you know, probably was very politically active, still, you know, very strong political opinions and all that stuff. So you're seeing how the O.J. Simpson Time magazine cover juxtaposed to Saddam Hussein. How do you shape people's opinions just using images? Right. So then your little your little project was everyone has a video camera. You go out into the streets, you pick subjects and you do basically two different treatments of that same person. And that was my initial, so you get like a team of three or four people, uh-huh. you're a film team, you're a narrative team where you're creating a narrative and a script, and that was the first one. By then, I was, uh, I was going into my senior year, Yeah. so I come back home. I almost didn't come back home. The only wow. reason I came back was because I would have lost all my credits and been, would have been starting over as a sophomore, oh. and I don't know what financial aid is like in South Africa when you're not a citizen. <laughs> so I just came back home. Then I started taking computer science classes. I took an art history class at Spelman. And I graduated thinking, okay, I might still go to law school. But after I worked at a law firm, by then it was the bug was already in my brain. I was done. I was already ready to go. So what really drove that that change from law school to design? Was it just just wasn't what you thought it would be? So the thing was this is the weird part. You know, as a 10-year-old, and the only reason I started business in law was as a 10-year-old, I was a kid walking around with a pen and a pad doing sketches. And I'll tell you exactly what did it. It was Night Rider 2000. I'm not ashamed to say that. <laughs> that came out the day before my birthday, my 10th birthday, 1990. And I saw this car that was autonomous and doing all these amazing things. Uh-huh. And between the ages of four and seven, no one could tell me that cars couldn't do that. By the time I was, you know, seven, eight, nine. I mean, we also had like Transformers. We had GoBots. Our generation was like primed for this stuff. Very futuristic. So, you know, the the ages of seven, eight, and nine, I lost that. And then by the age ten, Kit comes back and tells me this can happen. Michael. Yes. Michael. Michael. And he he was (laughs) sassy. He was, you know, he was like, man, he had a personality. Yeah. So. After that, I would walk around for the probably the next five or six years, sketching, drawing, sketching, drawing. My mom had this old stack of like 1976 Encyclopedia Britannicas. And I would go, like, how do you make a hologram? I'd go to the H's and lug this book and put it on the floor. Mm-hmm. And then it'd be, oh, mom, I need you to take me to the patent library. These things made me think, oh, these, this is the way I can get to it. Because MakerBots weren't around in 95, 96. Right. It's $50,000 to make a prototype. Now you can do it for, you know, two grand investment, get your filament and, and go to work. So working at a law firm, not enjoying it. I was in a room full of banker boxes. I was in the intellectual property division. Mm-hmm. But... This is not fun. I'm not sketching. I'm looking at maybe someone else's, you know, patent every now and again. This is not exciting anymore. And at that point, I was like, well, I can either, you know, spend 30 grand on law school a year or I can start looking at art school. So that was what gave me the shift. Well, I really like that you kind of spoke to how you got into design really at a later point, because one thing that and and I sort of talked about this in my panel when we sort of spoke about the pipeline of, uh, of getting d- students interested in design, yeah, there's the notion that design has to be something which you have to latch on to and work with from a very early age yeah, and like yeah. really be nurtured and pushed into it as opposed to maybe starting out in one discipline and then changing to something else, you yeah. know? And I mean, and this is the part where I think it would really illustrate the difficulty my family was, like I said, my mom would have to drive 50 miles from the small town called Tacoa, Georgia that we lived in 
to Anderson, South Carolina, which is about 50 miles, mm-hmm. to get me to the closest patent library. It was oh, either wow. that or Atlanta. So I still have the family nurturing, right. but you still have a family that has the traditional values. Are you going to be a doctor? Are you going to be a lawyer? So right. this is possibly the best case scenario for some people. Having a family, I had an older brother-in-law. He's a computer engineer. He lives in Michigan, and he's moving back to Atlanta. But he gave me this book. I remember before I picked any majors or schools, it was a hundred things you can do in technology. And he gave this to me and he was like, you need to look at this book. And I'm like, dude, you don't understand <laughs> what this situation is. These yeah. people expect me to do this. Uh-huh. Where am I going to get the money for this? What is the, the lucrative? And it even had salaries. Again, this is a kid who feels like I have this, I have years of sketching and, and doing product design as a kid, mm-hmm. but this is not the route I'm supposed to go. So even when you have some of that, that whole thing, there is still a familiar social cultural pressure that will say, hey, you need to go to Morehouse. And I, like that was the thing at all. For me, it was not a downer because that got me to South Africa. That got me to a different perspective that allowed me to say, OK, I care about debating and arguing people. That doesn't mean you want to be a lawyer. Right. You know, so. It's nothing to that effect that this wasn't a good experience. It was just that I had to go through all of those cultural pressures and kind of wean myself out of it and say, well, I'm still going to I'm going to be what I want to be. That is the personal obstacle. But then there are the cultural, the financial, you know, those other professional obstacles that I think mm-hmm. a lot of black designers face. One thing that I sort of really don't see a whole lot of, and maybe this is just with my research, is kind of seeing designers that have come from that HBCU background. Yeah. They've either come from an art school background or they've been self-taught in some yeah. sort of way. Yeah. And I know that there are HBCUs out there that have really good kind of arts programs that will support you. I'm yeah. not 100% sure if Morehouse is really one of them. It, Morehouse isn't one of them. And, you know, I would say Howard is probably Bradford Cox, obviously, yeah. in the film, you know, in that realm. And Morehouse gets it in terms of Spike Lee went there. Yes. <laughs> you know, like yeah. that's, that's Spike Lee went there. Samuel L. Jackson graduated yeah, from there. So it's a different kind of art. Yeah. It's not design. It's acting or something. Yeah, or direct, Yeah, film yeah. or something. So that's kind of your, your closest proximity. I mean, I guess in fair disclosure, that was it, when you're 18 years old and you feel like you have to go to college, sometimes you go, I need to go to the place that will sometimes position me when I'm ready to make a decision. And that's why I feel like Morehouse is really good for me because... At the end of the day, I mean, I remember I had gotten a letter from USC for film, but I'd never sent them anything. Hmm. And I was like, where is this coming from? Oh, they're just going to send me to crew up. I'm not going there. Oh. You know? So I think, like I said, with Morehouse, what it allowed me to do was define myself in that way. You know, I went through those four years. And I said, okay, you know, business is not the way to intellectual property. Law would be. Okay, law is the way to intellectual property, but you don't want to do intellectual property. What you really want to do, kid, is you want to be the person creating and designing things. So when I was at that law firm, after six months of working there, I said, I want to work part time. Mm-hmm. And I enrolled in a dual university program between Oglethorpe and Atlanta College of Art. So okay. you would do two years at Oglethorpe, a year and a half, and then you would shift to Atlanta College of Art. The semester I'm supposed to shift to Atlanta College of Art, SCAD buys them. Oh. I lose all of my credits. What? I lose everything. That was two years of work that It I was non transferable? Non transferable because SCAD took over they have their own curriculum they wow. have their own so at that point it was 2006 uh-huh. my friends were going on tour in a band I still love film and the first it was going to be a new media film studies anyway uh-huh. they're like and they were they were going to Afropunk and everything and they're like hey you want to come in the van with us I'm typing at a law firm 
Yeah. And I was like, yeah, I'm about to get my severance check and I'm about to buy this camera. And they're like, <laughs> when are we going? Next week. I was like, I'm in the van. And that was my like exodus from law. Wow. And then after that, I come home, I have no job. So for six months, I went through this grueling process of opening up Linda videos and total training, I think it was, I forget the other ones. And then I would go to interviews knowing I would fail. That was the grueling part because I knew I did not have all of the skills that I was missing out on not being enrolled in school. Uh -huh. So I would go read the job description and go, okay, we're going to go in this thing. We're still going to give it all we got from what we learned mm -hmm. and then get their feedback. Go home, learn the things they say you need to go feedback, go for another. I went through about 10 interviews that way until the last interview at the end of that six months period was um, with the High Museum of Art. And I went to the interview. I had a prototype of a site that was like a micro site built in Flash for kids, like an educational thing. Uh -huh. And I read on the, on the High Museum. I did all this stuff. And I remember my friends were like, you're doing too much. And I walk into the interview and they're like, you have a prototype of the site? They're like, do you know how many people don't even know the name of like our institution? Right. And I was like, I guess. And, and I'm sitting there thinking I'm walking into another <laughs> fail situation. But I had some confidence about it. I had learned enough at that point that I was like, I have a chance as much a chance as any other candidate. Mm -hmm. It will only be about what I can show them because I don't have SCAD on my thing. I don't have ACA anymore. I can't go for those two things. Mm -hmm. It's only only way I get in is if I just keep keep going and knocking on doors until I finally someone gets me in. That's so interesting that you interviewed kind of as a way to learn what you needed to know. Because this is the thing. When you even if you go to there are crappy designers that go to art school. Yeah. And really what every job is going to take is really aptitude and ability to apply what is on that job in that setting. So those interviews, when they're giving you those assessments, it is an assessment of a everyday task and activity. Uh-huh. So if you can get the idea of what that task and activity ent entails. So one was, um, and this was one that was an easy one. It wasn't a law firm, but it was um, basically an agency that does the, uh, the presentations for, uh, in court. Mm -hmm. So when you're doing that, there's someone that uses Illustrator for this. Okay, so that means you have to be able to do aerial views and, and that sort of thing. And then some, some of the other roles were using like Cinema 4D for 3D representations. Right, right. So I went to this thing like, I know nothing of Cinema 4D. <laughs> I'm like beginner on, on Illustrator. Mm -hmm. yeah, this one's going to suck. Let's go into the interview. And so, you know, after, you know, he kind of gave me the, you know, I'm sorry, you know, your skills are a little, I was like, yeah, I know. What would I need to do to get up to this point? And he sits down and he walks me through. He goes, you know, this is what we were looking for here. This is what we would need here. Mm -hmm. da, 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 da. And if you want to come back after you think you're there, come back. And I would go home and study. And if I wanted to go back to that place or not, I would. But I usually was just picking different ones <laughs> that I, I feel I could live with myself if I never could show my face to that place again. Right, but right. But also it was a diverse skill set that I could go, okay, my next one, I'm going to have this thing in my, in my bag. Yeah, so then I, I worked at the High Museum and it went crazy because they had had this partnership with the Louvre. And you're working with kids that went to Sarbonne. I remember that. And you have people that went to RISD. And you have people that went to ACA. Yeah. So then my art education became the museum. I would learn from these people. I would let them criticize oh, okay. me. I would go to the, the exhibition halls and study everything that came in. Because I was like, if I can't get my art, art, art education by paying for it, which it was, would have been really expensive to go to SCAD. Uh-huh. I said, I have to figure out. So I said, the only way I won't force myself to go to RISD or somewhere if I'm going to have to pay is if I get a job at this museum. If I get a job at this museum, I will suck in every piece of art 
<laughs> that I can get my hands on, which is what I did pretty much. See, this is so this is so interesting. We both went to Morehouse. We both worked for the Woodruff Art Center. I used to work for them. Really? I worked for them when I was at Morehouse. I mean, I sold tickets. I didn't. I was trying to you get there. your job, actually. Wow. I was working in the box office. I remember this clear as day. I was working in the box I office. I was web I, content coordinator, I, I started about junior year. I was working in the box office selling tickets to the symphony, to the, the museum and all this yeah. kind of stuff. And was good at it. You know, I was because I could, were looking for that. I, segue. I, well, I guess it was because and the way that they sort of tried to justify it was that, well, you're majoring in math. So that uh, means you can do all the calculations in your head. And I'm we like, need you here. You're like, like, yeah, like you can okay. do change really quickly. Like that was yeah. the kind of the thing. You're like, I can walk also, but that doesn't mean I, I need to be right, right. a professional walker. And so <laughs> I graduated from Morehouse. And I remember going to work that next week because I was still working at the uh, box office. Yeah. And going to my boss and talking to her because I told her about the web content coordinator position that I yeah, wanted that was to one. be a part of. And I told her, I was like, I've been doing websites. I've been doing oh web design. I have my degree. I would really like to do it. And she was like, okay, yeah, go for it. And so I said, okay, cool. So I went and I applied for it. And I mean, she blocked me like every wow. step of the way. And she blocked me every step of the way that I was trying to get it. And I mean, I remember going to the interview and I knew my stuff. I had a portfolio, yeah. felt really good about it. And then uh, the lady that I spoke with, I don't even know if she was there when you were there, but it was this black woman named, uh, should we say kind of like names? small, kind of frail black woman. What I year did her. you go in? What year was this? I was, this was like 2003. Okay. This was probably before me then. I don't think, was she in the marketing group for, yeah, she oh, was like you a, mean for HR? Yeah. Miss Eloise. Luke. Yes. Eloise. Yes. yes. Eloise Luke. I remember. Yes. <laughs> so she was like, did you get permission from your manager? I was like, yeah, I did. Yeah. It's like, well, I don't, I don't have it. I'm like, are you serious? Yeah, and then I went back to my over. manager told her about it and she's like if you do this again you're fired wow and then i remember i was off the next day and you were like and she done. fired me on my day off like wow. on friday see that <laughs> see this is the thing that is a that goes for any organization fostering growth yeah it's a mantra that a lot of places say but the thing is, a lot of these places, like like the Woodruff Art Center, and nothing against them, they're broken down into divisions. Yeah. And because of that, each division has its motivation. And her motivation is so small, so limited, that I need to keep this body here cranking these numbers and not thinking, this body might go into the role that'll make it easier for me to crank these numbers. He knows what this position entails. He might go to the design team and say, if you did this, this would make their jobs easier. Yeah. And she could win. But she didn't see it she that way. She didn't see it that way. Man, we would have been working together. Man. Imagine that. And so there is... <laughs> Is, um, and it's so funny because years after that, I ended up working for the state of Georgia for um, okay. Georgia World Congress Center, Centennial right. Olympic Park mm. and everything. And the guy who was in the position before me yeah. was a Morehouse graduate. See, I think there's something going on there. And this, this, is, this is also something I noticed. I was going out to California just checking out some prospects and stuff. And I was on the plane coincidentally with about 12 Morehouse and Spelman students. Uh-huh. And as soon as I get and at first I see one kid and like, okay, I see your shirt. Yeah, talk to Mike. Oh, yeah. I see one kid and I see a shirt and I'm like, okay. And I see another one. I'm like, it's a weekday. Y'all aren't supposed to be going to California. It's not <laughs> spring break. What's right. going on here? So as soon as I get off the plane, I rush over to him. And the first thing I do, I was like, y'all go to Morehouse, right? He goes, yes. I was like, I'm a UX designer. Here, here, here. I was like, I have no more business cards. Please call me. <laughs> if y'all are listening, y'all did not call me or email me. I'm dead serious. What? But I think there's something there where there is a creative black class at so many HBCUs that it goes unexpressed. 
yeah. or it's not nurtured in that way yeah. that the obvious things are, you know? So as you were talking about working at the Woodruff Art Center, mm-hmm. or, well, Woodruff Art Center, High Museum, and saying that your education was the museum and that you went and talked to people about this, yeah. I feel like there's a certain level of audaciousness there the f- that I feel might be missing from younger designers just in terms of like seeking out the opportunity where it is as yeah. opposed to trying to get into something that might be the opportunity. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, it's so weird because I think what it boils down to is I don't see those things as audacious. That's the funny part. I was just like, I was so miserable working at a law firm that uh-huh. I had a very clear picture. The law firm that I worked at was the block over from the museum. Mm-hmm. So I think I had this very, I had a mental note that I could be doing this thing that just killed me emotionally. Like, it drained me working at that place. So I think that might have been the, the impetus. It was just like, if you want this, you got this one. This is maybe your only chance because unless you're going to spend 30000 to go to school again right. and wait three more years, you got to go in. So I would take my camera and, and film exhibit exhibitions. Andy Leibovitz came. I was like... I got a camera at home. They're like, what camera you got? I was like, I have an HD camera at home. Don't play with me. I'll bring it. Yeah. And, you know, so it was just like every day was like, I'm going to keep ramping up. I wasn't getting paid enough to ramp up, but I knew that was the only way yeah, yeah. that I could get the things that I wasn't going to get going at an institution. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I don't know if it's, it may be audacious, but I think that word is so scary to people. I would just, like, if you really, if this was something that you had when you were a kid, or this is something that you do in your free time and you felt like you had to hide from people. If you ever get an opportunity to get paid even a little for that, go. Like, don't like I don't think I came off as audacious or anything. I think people just knew I really cared and I wanted to learn and I wanted to not only learn like that's probably my biggest other thing is I consider myself an autodidact, but I love sharing information to everyone around me. OK, so. I think it's that kind of thing. Like, I'm just going to keep pulling in information. And it may be this, it may feed into this whole thing of I'm not coming from a school. I'm a black designer. I don't fit the package you expect. So I have to reinforce myself. I have uh-huh. to validate. I have to compensate for what you don't think I can do. I'm going to go in for everything. Right. So I think that can be a motivation sometimes. I'm very honest with myself. Like, man, I wasn't getting paid enough to do some of the stuff I was doing, but I was willing and I was happy to do it because mm-hmm. I was like, I'm here and this is my chance, you know? Did you have any kind of professional mentors or anything that helped you out when you went into your kind of design journey? I had no mentors, but I had one peer. And this, was a, this I guess, is very interesting in this context. When I was in high school, this is a very small town. I wasn't from there. I was seen as the black kid that would go to college. Okay. So I had to do the oratory speeches for Martin Luther King. I yeah. had to do Black History Bowl, which I really wanted to do at Morehouse, but I was scared. Man, <laughs> I was. So these things were things I was expected to do. I had a close best friend in high school, and he dropped out about the 10th grade, but he was the artist. He uh-huh. was the one who was sketching. And we did this thing where we would trade off, and every now and again, he would go, man, you can draw. And I would go, I can't. I don't really know how. I'm looking at your stuff. You're amazing. So we did like these little one-offs. He had the screen printing class, and I'd do like, this little sketch of the Wu-Tang logo and we'd make little stationery and we made knockoff shirts in high school oh wow and then he drops out of high school so i lose track of him and when he finds out that i'm doing this stuff he's like how did you do this and i'm like hmm. you know what man i was thinking about what we were doing when we were growing up and he's yeah. like just keep doing it and now he's asking me questions so seeing that someone that i looked up to as a kid uh-huh didn't make it through that whole process he was getting art awards in high school state level 
but he had no family support for it. He ends up dropping out of high school. He probably didn't think it was profitable for him. Wow. And now, you know, our conversations are different where I'm like, hey, here's this tutorial. Call me. Like, seriously, we need to get on Skype or something right now. We're going to do this tonight. I'm going to show you how to do yeah. this. Like, you can draw up totally fine. Let me show you how to vectorize this thing. So, is, is he still designing or no? He's he's in Minneapolis. So I'm, tell, I'm trying to get him to start thinking of the Walker Art Center. Okay. And I'm yeah, like, man, yeah. if you can get in at the Walker. They are amazing. These they, I was like, that's who I looked at when we were at the high. I'm like, we need to do more stuff like them. I'm like, if we can just get you there, man, like it's around the corner. It's in your city. They are known. So I'm, I'm getting him to that point where I'm trying to like save him those years of going to 10 interviews and, and knowing you're going to fail or, yeah. you know, not having. So I didn't really have anybody. I just I just knew I like Spike Lee. I like Michelle Gondry. I like so many different artists. And that's all I had. You go home and you just go home with that in your mind. Yeah. Yeah. So. Okay. So you're here at South by Southwest. What have you learned so far? Man. I guess, you know, the, the, the hardcore technical things, I wouldn't say with so much of that as self-promotion. I can say that throughout my career. I haven't always been the best self-promoter. Mm-hmm. I'm a very heads down. Everyone that knows me will tell you I'm a heads down. I'm the person that gets things done. But in a place like this, it's not necessarily about getting things done. It's about walking up to people, talking to people, not being afraid, which, you know, when you're being seen as if you feel like you'll be seen as the other or someone that's not the expected package, that can be a hard thing to get over. Like my first session here, my first session was um, connected cars and things like that. It was put on by Frog, which is a pretty huge team out in uh, San Francisco. Mm -hmm. And I didn't think I was going to get in. Like, let me just sit in the line and wait. I get in. And you're paired up with a group of people. You come up with this project, and it has to be based on one of the people in your team. From past experience, I was like, okay, I can either end up being the invisible person in this group, Uh or if I make myself vulnerable and and volunteer myself, I will be a part of this process. So we picked this scenario of romantic getaways. I had just coincidentally, three weeks prior, proposed to my fiance. Hey, how you doing? Um, (laughs) Shout out Congratulations. to her. amazing. <laughs> and so I said, I'm going to make this this scenario. So I offered it to the group. Being vulnerable in that way mm-hmm. opened up that process for me. So I think as a designer of color, male or female, or someone who didn't have the, you know, the pedigree school, if you just make it, in a situation like this, make yourself vulnerable, make yourself available, because those are the things that make you relatable to people. The skills, honestly, I don't think about skills and stuff because all I think about is I had the aptitude to learn things. So I don't think about skills that people have. And I think a lot of people don't. They think, can I relate to you? Can I work with you? Can I show you something? Because mm-hmm. if you don't know what I need you to know, I, you just give me this piece of your humanity that allows me to work with you. Right. And I think sometimes that's missing in design. What do you think companies can do? And I guess we're speaking like from a hiring perspective. What do you think companies can do to help really bring in more diversity and bring in designers of color yeah. as it relates to well yeah let's, we'll just say it that way we'll just say what do you think that they can do to bring in more I would say more designers two of words, color? screw the pipeline like there is no pipeline I don't I think the pipeline is imagined the pipeline is the preferred route so I think that exists to some degree mm-hmm. but I think what they really should look at, they should look at how many times people move internally in their organizations. Someone starts off doing, like, even like you said, if you were allowed that, they start off in, in box office reservations. They could move to design. They could, this happens in companies all the time. So that tells you right there alone, this person fit this pipeline profile and they were able to move. So don't look at skills assessments and certain institutions so rigidly. Look at aptitude. 
Right. If you look at aptitude and adaptability, that is going to be your person that is successful. Mm -hmm. For one, that's going to help them kind of retool themselves as you need them to be. But that means they will also be able to work with other people. And that's like the biggest thing when you, when you talk about design, usability, UX, empathy. Like you need empathy for the customer. You need empathy for the people you work with. There's no pipeline for that. That comes in many shapes and colors and sizes. So I think I would say, you know, yeah, maybe you need to get some people through the pipeline. But you should really look internally and go, well, we've, we've abolished the pipeline internally. We don't use it that much sometimes. We okay. promote people throughout organizations horizontally, vertically, every direction once they're in the gates. So that tells you right. you, need, you need adaptability. You need traits, not schools, you know, specifically. Mm. I did an interview recently with Ashley Nelson Hornstein. She's uh, mm. an iOS developer at Dropbox. Okay. Before that, she was working at Circa. And before that, she was working at Apple. Okay. And so when I asked her about, like, well, how was it that you really learned iOS development? And she was sort of saying, like, she came in one way. Mm -hmm. And then, like, while she was there, they let her really cross-train with another company. And that's how she fell in with iOS development. I'm not sure if she would have gotten to that route if that wasn't available. But I feel like that's something more companies can do if you see that your employees really want to go that way. Like, don't try to hold them back. If they want to stay with your company... But Nothing just want to like increase. Why would that be a negative? Yeah, it's never. You've retained that person. You retain their the knowledge base that you put into them. And like there was one that I saw. I was watching the Creative Mornings with um, Ben, the guy who founded Mailchimp. Yeah, Ben Chestnut. Yes. Yeah. And he was talking about how as an undergrad he didn't get into Georgia Tech, mm. and so he went to UGA to study physics. He goes to Georgia Tech through the physics department, and literally the advisor tells him, okay, when you get here, then you can switch into industrial design. You don't have the skills for industrial design. We know that's what you want to do. Come in through physics. No one wants to come here for physics. And then just switch your major in industrial design. And that's what he does now. And so he moved from industrial design to product design, down to design, down to this product, that now he employs designers. So it's like sometimes the most successful people, a lot of times most successful people, they go through this evolutionary process because they were allowed to. So right. you have all these people in your company that are evolutionary, all these people outside of your company. By design, we are humans. We are made to survive and live and adapt by whatever means we can. This is true. So keep that in mind when you're looking at candidates, you know? What is the Atlanta design scene like? It's better than it was, man. It's, it's better than it was. I mean... When I was when I was going through all, all this this rigor rigor moral and rigor both at the same time call it what you want uh-huh. I was working at a small gallery in Cat in Cabbage Town again failing interviews was um, it PB and J no it was Yo Yo Kirkwood oh was Yo Yo yeah one that shut that. down yeah, so yeah I was there and so that to me felt like my design community or art community because we do these parties and you have kids coming from you know Art Institute of Atlanta. Uh, Atlanta College of Art and even for a little bit while I was there some of the kids that came from SCAD and I was like man whatever (laughs) right 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 but you had that much of a little bit of a community but outside of that that was the job that I had before I went to the museum so I went to the museum like why don't you have these local artists I know lots of them why aren't you supporting them now I think that aspect is still kind of missing where the established art community is maybe kind of understanding now they need to start pulling this local talent but I do think things like Creative Mornings, General Assembly are helping a whole lot. I think Jared Kugler, he's a Morehouse grad. Uh, yeah, I know Jared. Um, yeah. So, I mean, these things can filter out into these communities that don't generally have a strong art design presence. Mm-hmm. It's not all the way there yet, but at least I feel it's, a li- it's better than it was in 2006, man. I'll tell you that. <laughs> 
Where do you see yourself in like the next five years or so? I am going to reclaim my 10 year old that was inventing stuff. And I am going to, I want to be a founder. You know, okay. I think at this point, I'm just loosely playing with prototypes and ideas. And the main reason is, it's like, again, kind of, you know, going alliterating back to that friend in high school. It's like, how many people could, I can help people by giving them this information, which is like one of those things. It's like, I have to help people. I have to, you know, teach people tutorials. I'm like, but there's like another level of help in right. terms of changing this industry. And it's like, I can only do so much at my desk you know, cranking out designs. Yeah. So it's like you're kind of thinking, okay, five to 10 years, there is another level of empowering and changing this world. Like, like I said, Steve Jobs wouldn't have been able to do that, cranking out designs. I mean, if, if, if we told Steve Jobs he had to go to RISD and he made himself a designer, <laughs> what would this world be like? Like, he'd be maybe an awesome designer, He'd be another Paul Rand, maybe, because that's what people, you know, thought you would have to... Not Paul Rand, Lord. I'm, anyway, he would have been a, a huge name designer. Yeah. But he would not have been Steve Jobs, and all of our lives would have been different. So my mindset is, okay, like, I've been going down this, this route of these are the things you need to be validated within the design community. But you eventually have your own ideas, and I want to live them out. Mm-hmm. I, I like that part you mentioned about validation because we talked about this before we started yeah. recording how there are so many talented designers out there. Yeah. They may not call themselves designers. Yeah. They, may, they may or they may not. But there are a lot of talented designers out there where the industry has made it such that you need to have an art degree in order to be validated yeah. as a designer or you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. So like yeah. you, there were people that I've interviewed who have been completely self-taught that have done great work that have done work for big clients. Yeah. And they're telling me, you know, like off of the interview, like I'm thinking about going to art school because I need that degree. Yeah. You know, yeah. in order for people to say, Hey, to take you, you can take me seriously. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think that's, it's another part of that whole reinforcing loop. Yes. So then if you think about it, the people who go to these, these schools, very prestigious institutions, they're great. Those are the people getting into the companies. Those are the people who make hiring decisions. Yeah. So in their mind, I see another designer either went to my school or school on par. I can identify with them. Well, maybe you can, maybe you can't. You know, and maybe that designer that has had to grind out you know, in freelance work actually can relate to you much more than someone who's maybe fresh out and doesn't even have that understanding of you have to be flexible. You have to, at sometimes the drop of a dime, move quickly. You know, that freelancer has a very intimate understanding of what it takes to get the job done, especially if you're thinking um, from a startup perspective. Oh, absolutely. A freelancer is like, they know what it takes. They're going to be up at hours. They're personally invested. Why would that person be less profitable than or less I guess less, even if you want to like desirable, yeah, yeah, less desirable for you than the person who may not understand that they're intimately tied. Their success and their their viability is tied to their product. That's a freelancer by definition. That's a starter by definition. So, I don't know if I answered that question. I got no, you did, you did. I think so. Yeah. (laughs) Well, just to kind of wrap things up, where can our audience find out more about you online? Yeah. So right now, rafechism.com. R A F E C H I S O L M. That's two very difficult names um, <laughs> rolled up in one, and no easy passes there. And at Rands Ampersand at R A N D S A M P E R S A N D, and that's uh, for Twitter. And underscore R A Y F if you're on Instagram. I do that sometimes. <laughs> right. Sounds good, man. Rafe Chisholm, thank right, you man. again 
for you, speaking man. with me today. It was good to run into you at South by Southwest. Always yeah. good to run into I'm a fellow. I'll run into you in Atlanta, though, too, finally. <laughs> well, I mean, you know. Since, since hey, graduation. Yeah. <laughs> but, I mean, it's, it's good to speak to another Morehouse grad, another HBCU grad that's kind of out here doing it, doing it for the city and things like that. So thank you, man, so much. I appreciate it. Thank you, man. And that's it for this week. Big thanks to Rafe Chisholm and thanks to you for listening. You can find out more about Rafe and his work through the links in the show notes at revisionpath.com. Thanks as always to our sponsors, MailChimp, Hover, and Creative Market. When it comes to email marketing, MailChimp makes it extremely simple. They've got really great reporting and autoresponder features, and you can send 12,000 emails to 2,000 subscribers for free. No contracts, no credit card required. Check them out at MailChimp.com. Hover is the best way to buy and manage domain names, and they give you exactly what you need to get the job done. Get yourself a new domain or transfer your current domains to Hover and save 10% off your first purchase by using the promo code SPREADLOVE at checkout. And lastly, there's Creative Market, a marketplace that sells beautiful ready-to-use design content from thousands of independent creators from around the globe. Head over to Creative Market and pick up those six free goods that are available for free every Monday. This episode was edited by RJ Basilio and produced by me, Maurice Cherry. Our intro is by Music Man Dre with intro audio by Yellow Speaker. The outro audio, They See Me Growing, is courtesy of Jimmy Square. Make sure you're subscribed to us on iTunes. Leave a rating and a review. It really helps us get new listeners, helps the show grow. It's just really, really helpful to get those reviews. And you can do it for free. There's cost nothing to do that. I'll even read your review right here on the show. Revision Path is a 318 media project. If you like the work we're doing with the podcast and the website, then visit revisionpath.com forward slash donate and let us know. Leave a tip in our tip jar, sponsor an upcoming episode, or join at the $5 fist bump level to show your ongoing support. Thanks so much for listening and we'll see you next time.